no change in the college football playoff top 10, which means all 10 can still get in. Let's go. It's the number one college football show. What's up, kinfolk? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we got to take a look at the college football playoffs top 10, top 25, see who's getting in, see who's left out, see if I got some bones to pick, and I do with their top 25. And we're going to get you set for this weekend's big slate of games, none bigger than Michigan and Penn State. But first, let's just take a look at the college football playoffs top 25. And as we do, I'll remind you some facts here. All 10 teams in their top 10 still have a path to the college football playoff, which means that even Ole Miss can get there, but it's going to take some doing. It's going to take some first for Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss to do just that. And also add in here that all of the Power 5 conferences have at least one team that is able to make the college football playoff. Some have more than one team, thanks to the SEC and Really, the Pac-12 standing out among the others. And then Michigan, Ohio State, they got to play each other. But we'll get to that in a little bit. And does a one-loss Ohio State or Michigan get ahead of an undefeated one-loss conference champ in a Texas or Oregon or even a Washington? Yeah, even a Washington. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But as I take a look at this, I, I got no problem with them standing pat for what they did last week. Because, frankly, everybody took care of business that needed to take care of business. And folks that didn't, they're no longer in this thing. So you're looking at number one Ohio State, who I thought – the committee might give some side eye to for going down nine to seven to Rutgers, but then nobody's been able to play with Ohio State in the second half. And they still have the best player in the sport and Marvin Harrison Jr. And that defense is still not giving up more than 17 in any game, right? I'm looking at Georgia there. They're going to get tried again by another ranked opponent, Ole Miss following Missouri. Great win for them against Missouri last week, particularly because there was no Brock Bowers. Florida State still undefeated, even if they ain't played nobody, according to me. And Michigan finally gets to play somebody, according to us all. Washington, Oregon, that feels like it's a budding Pac-12 championship, so we'll get one of those. So inside this top five, somebody's going to have to take a loss, whether they want to or not. And then it's about what is the, uh, the committee going to do as we go further down there. Now, when I take a look at this, again... I'm looking at my top 25 and we can we can pick a fight about what we're seeing here or not seeing here. But really quick, before I get into really the news of the day that involves Michigan gets us into Penn State and Michigan, I want to point out that somehow the committee saw fit to move Tennessee up four spots after beating UConn, saw fit to move Oregon State up four spots after beating Colorado, who's now looking at four straight losses on the bounce at home if they lose to Arizona this weekend, who's also ranked. and then. North Carolina somehow gets in here in the top 25 after losing games in back-to-back -back weeks against Georgia Tech and Virginia, but beating FCS Campbell, right? I feel like we could put somebody else in those spots. I feel like anybody else really has an argument to be there. It's nice to see Iowa there, though. I did not expect them to do that because, frankly, I felt like I was the only person that was watching Iowa football and got to see, hey, they're atop the Big Ten West. They got two losses, and they could be walking straight into what could be a really outstanding season without the starting quarterback in Cade McNamara and making it happen with Deacon Hill. Phil Parker, by the way, ought to be a Broyles Award finalist. I mean, nominations are open for the Broyles Award. And by the way, your head coach has to nominate one of his coordinators to make the list. And the list is going to be released next week. So tell your head coach, if you got a coordinator you think is pretty good, to go put his name in the hat so that Broyles Award voters like myself 
can go and have an opportunity to vote for your guy because, frankly, if he don't do it, we can't vote for him. So go ahead and get that done. All right. Let's get off of the college football playoff rankings because, frankly, the committee didn't do me no favors because they want me to make my own content for this rather than making the content for me. And let's talk about who did make some content for me. The Michigan man, right? That can mean any number of things depending on who you're talking to. Could be Connor Stallions. Could be Jim Harbaugh. Could be John U. Bacon because it is off and running when as far as this investigation and what might happen or not happen around Michigan football. All right. So I'm going to take this slow so that everybody can stay on course here because this story continues to get wilder and even more fun for those of us that aren't Big Ten or Michigan fans. Frankly, if you're in that conference, it's probably something that's underneath your skin one way or another. But the Big Ten notified Michigan that if it could take disciplinary action against the school, according to or that it could take disciplinary action against the school, according to multiple reports, right? What does that even look like? We don't know. Frankly, the Big Ten has the authority to discipline a member school through its sportsmanship policy. Now, what I find interesting about the sportsmanship policy is how it is laid out. Check this out. The Big Ten sportsmanship policy says the league expects all contests involving a member institution to be conducted without compromise to any fundamental element of sportsmanship. Such fundamental elements include integrity of competition. You heard me waxing poetic about integrity of the game. Civility toward all, respect particularly toward opponents and officials, end quote. Now, why does this have some bearing all of a sudden? Well, it is the one rule that the Big Ten commissioner, Tony Petiti, could use to punish Michigan, given what he may or may have not have learned from the NCAA investigators. But Michigan has an opportunity to respond and respond they have. Now, I have a group chat going with staff uh, of the number one college football show, and I had already told everybody that I could. I couldn't wait for John U. Bacon to write his book about this, because if you don't know, John U. Bacon has written a million books about Michigan football and really helped educate me about being a fan of Big Ten teams very early on in my life. So he's been a part of it. I got his books all over the house, really uh, going all the way back to like 2003. But he tweeted later today or earlier today. That for what it's worth, Big Ten's Tony Petiti was informed today that the two programs which fed Purdue Michigan signals before the 2022 Big Ten title game were Rutgers and Ohio State. Not clear if rules were broken, doesn't directly affect UM's situation, but raises questions, RE relative competitive advantage. You'll know that the whole reason we're here is because Michigan is accused of stealing signals the illegal way. And that has been orchestrated by a dude who has resigned his post. I say he got fired. Y'all say he got resigned. Whatever doesn't make you a distraction to the program and Connor Stallions. Now, what it seems to be that the Michigan stance on this is they be cheating too, <laughs> which means that not for nothing, man, but the Big Ten looking like y'all just snitching is the policy. Snitching is just what y'all going to do now because it ain't happening as quickly as you want it to happen. But to their credit, this has been kind of a thing in the Big Ten. So I wrote a column for FoxSports.com that will be up later today, uh, later this week, excuse me. And The Athletic has done some really great reporting on this, so it's CBS Sports, to remind us that the Big Ten actually submitted a proposal to the NCAA's Football Rules Committee a communication headset and for their for their in-helmet translate, uh, excuse me, one-way one-way headset communication, right? There you go from the head coach or play caller to the quarterback or the defensive quarterback, right? Basically eliminating the idea that you need signals. That 
was denied because, well, they thought the Big Ten would have a competitive advantage on the field against other teams that weren't in the Big Ten Conference, which, you know, is cool. But we're going to see that experiment take hold during the bowl season as really the rules committee said, look, we're going to let people that want to use this technology, not just the one-way communication, but also tablets on the sideline, wearables on the sideline, if they so choose, gather some more information about this. And so this is always going to happen. But it's picked up a lot more steam here in the last couple of weeks. And it seems like Big Ten officials had been notified that this might not be kosher what's going on at Michigan. Can we just go ahead and have these headsets to use whatever we can to get around the stealing of our signals? And I think it's kind of interesting that we're in this place now because the NFL has been using headset to helmet communication since 1994. They've had a defensive play caller with a headset in since 08. We've seen them use tablets since 2014, and yet, and still, I got Lincoln Riley sending in ASL to the quarterback to get him to play, right? We got folks holding placards over top of Chip Kelly's head trying to signal what the play is, and for whatever reason, we're just here now. Now, and as far as what happens with Michigan, maybe we'll hear something later this week. Maybe we won't. It seems like Michigan is going, hey, due process is afforded to us and doesn't look like there's really much you can do to Michigan this season, which means that, yeah, this is probably the year for which they're most likely to win the national championship because it's all going that way for them. Now, I would encourage you to go read all you can about one-way communication and how it's going to benefit your school and how it's going to benefit the sport because, again, protecting the integrity of the sport is what this is about for me. I could give a damn about whether or not Michigan is going to get punished or not punished. The kids don't care. They just go win football games. And I'm sure that if you are a fan of Big Ten schools, you care. But I care about the integrity of the game. I want the game to be played fairly and squarely. So if you get your butt kicked, you don't get to say they were stealing our signals. Look, dog, I don't, I'm five foot five, 135. If you line me up against Orlando Brown, I'm going to lose that pass rush of competition, even if he knows what the play is, even if I know what the play is, it just don't matter. Can you beat him on a football field or not? All right. That leads us kind of into this weekend's big noon kickoff game. That's number three, Michigan at number 10, Penn State. It's noon Eastern on Fox. By now, you understand the program. The big game is at 11 a.m. Central and noon Eastern time. And frankly, there's no bigger game on the calendar this weekend. They're they're just ain't. Because it's not just number three, Michigan versus number 10, Penn State. It is going to be the first ranked opponent that Michigan has faced all year. And they have skated in a way that has frustrated so many people. Because not even, no other team other than Texas Christian has gone that far without playing a ranked opponent. And they haven't played a ranked opponent in the college football playoff. (laughs) It's really difficult to get a read on how good or not good Michigan is, but I think the read is pretty clear. They did this last year, and we all thought, myself included, it was kind of a fluke. No, no, it's not. They were just running over people, and they continue to run over people. Ryan Walters and Purdue were the latest victims. Penn State, that game is going to be in Happy Valley this year, and, you know, they got a bone to pick as they got throttled 41-17 to just this time last year. Now, backing this up, the last time that the Penn State played a defense that was as good as Michigan, they scored all of 12 points and went 1-16 of on third down, and Drew Aller was so good that he told media after the game he sucked. His words, not mine. It's real difficult to look at that Penn State team and see a way for them to beat that Michigan team that has been both scarily efficient offensively and defensively. Because, A, Penn State has been beating everybody they're supposed to. But seems like when somebody's got a number above their head, 
they tend to play like we would expect a lower seed to play. So you take a look at this. James Franklin is three and sixteen against top ten teams and lost last uh, the eleven of twelve to man top ten teams. Like the only win they got is not even the regular season. It's against Utah in the Rose Bowl in twenty twenty three, and you'll be the first to remember Cam Rising goes out in that game. And then Penn State kind of walks to the victory, but Cam Rising made that team just a little bit different. And I still think he would make Utah different if he could play. But you get my point here. In the Big Ten, they've just been the third best team and, the, frankly, the third best team in their own division because Ohio State and Michigan are in their division. Now, Penn State held Ohio State to 20 points. In recent years, we'd say that's a big deal. Not really this year because the Ohio State offense has not been the one that we've come to know associated with Ryan Day. It's good enough to win. It ain't putting up 45, 48, and 50 on people like we are used to. See, Rutgers, for whom they've been winning by an average of about 40 and putting up 49. They struggled to get to 35 against the bowl-eligible Rutgers team, but you get my point here. Meanwhile, we're talking about a Penn State defense that has also been pretty damn good. Like, they're holding people to 4.0 yards per play. That's really good. Now they might get Chop Robinson back, which would be great because they lost him in the Ohio State game. And I think he changes their defense for the better. But you can't get over not just the record that Penn State has had against really good opponents, notably Michigan and Ohio State, but just how good Michigan has been this season alone. Some facts that'll sneak up on you. Roman Wilson, wide receiver, is tied with Marvin Harrison Jr. for passing or excuse me, receiving touchdowns in this season with 10, right? I looked up and said, really? It's it's actually better than that. It's Blake Corum who leads the FPS in rushing TDs with 16. It's a Michigan defense that is allowing 6.7 points per game. That is the fewest amount of points allowed by a Michigan football team through nine games since 1985. They're really good. But the one that I think you should focus on is the only other team to hold its first nine opponents to 14 or fewer over the last 20 years is 2021 Georgia. And we would all tell you that 2021 Georgia is the scariest defense that Kirby Smart has ever had. Full stop. So if you are keeping pace with those dudes, you are legitimate on defense. And J.J. McCarthy, you know, dude, I haven't even said out loud yet, is a Heisman finalist if Michigan continues to do what they've been doing, mostly because it's a quarterback-driven award and Blake Quorum is not having the kind of production that he did last year, this year, but, you know, you have a big game that could change too. Ask Aiden Hutchinson about going off against Ohio State, becoming a Heisman finalist, becoming a first-round draft pick overnight, or at least that's how it felt to me. But this game also has some really heavy implications for the Big Ten, aside from Michigan-Ohio State, but really Penn State. Like, I could tell you that this is the biggest game that Penn State has played, at least in the last five years, maybe the last seven years, for one simple fact, if Penn State beats Michigan and then Michigan beats Ohio State, all of them would finish with a Big Ten record of eight and one tie, right, for the Big Ten East title. Now we go into tiebreaker criteria for which we got to go through five points to get to the one that would actually decide who is the Big Ten East champ. That's how tight Penn State, Ohio State, and Michigan would be if Penn State could beat Michigan and Michigan could beat Ohio State. Now, it comes down to my favorite strength of schedule, like your record. So the way that this is written down in the Big Ten rulebook, the Big Ten East champ would be decided by a tiebreaker criteria for which you would have to get the fifth point in determining who would be the winner 
by comparing winning percentage against non-division opponents faced, right? So opponents outside of the East, how did they do when you faced them? And then what are their overall record? Put another way, strength of schedule. Penn State holds the edge by just one game because Penn State opponents have gone 8-10 and 10 in Big Ten play as non-divisional opponents. Ohio State and Michigan, 7-11. We still got a lot of football left to play, but you could see how Penn State puts themselves right back into not just an opportunity to you know, play for the Big Ten Championship, but to make the college football playoff for the first time in school history. That's no small thing. A lot riding on this game, and this game being at Beaver Stadium, this is going to be one of your better opportunities. Maybe not your best opportunity, but one of your better opportunities to go beat what we think is perhaps the best Michigan football team that Jim Harbaugh has ever coached. Now, outside of that, we're looking back at what Michigan has done, which is beat 21 straight Big Ten opponents and won 27 straight regular season games. Like, yet, you really got to get to the postseason and the college football playoff before you can start talking about the last couple of years for what Michigan calls losing, right? And even that Texas Christian game where Texas Christian beat them, J.J. McCarthy had to throw them the ball a couple of times for them to get that win, right? Now, I understand how someone can say, well, they were stealing signals. All right, dog. Um, Connor Stallions ain't been on the sideline for like a month. And all those kids have done, and I want to say this again, all those kids have done is go wreck shop. Like, I understand that you want to penalize coaches for participating if they did in alleged cheating, sign stealing, knowing plays before the play would run, fine. But at the end of the day, it's blocking and tackling. And those dudes have blocked and tackled better than anybody else in the Big Ten for the past two years. Players play, coaches coach. So I'm going to go ahead and pick Michigan to beat Penn State because I got Michigan as the number one team in the entire country. And remember, it's me saying this, right? It's going to be difficult for Penn State to come up with a way. But if they do, Drew Aller's going to be at the forefront of that. Tyler Warren's going to be at the forefront of that. Keandre Lambert-Smith going to be at the forefront of that. Nick Singleton, Katron Allen. Olu Fashion is going to have to keep his record of not having given up a sack in three seasons. Like, he's get, he's gotten beat before, but goodness me. They're going to have to play one hell of a football game on both sides of the ball to give themselves an opportunity to win that thing at the end. And the good news about beating Michigan is if you can get out in front of them, they got a hard time coming from behind to beat you. So it's going to be take your points when you can and try to go win a football game that could really change the entire tenor of James Franklin's career at Penn State and the tenor of Penn State football for the foreseeable future. All right. Let's go to the second biggest game on the schedule for me. Number nine, Ole Miss at number two, Georgia. Georgia's getting 10 and a half in the hook. Like, I mean, they get 10 and, half, 10 and the hook, excuse me. Like that, that feels like a lot because I immediately looked at this game when I'm supposed to pick it before the show and I flinched. Like there were two seconds in there where I was like, you know, Ole Miss could do this because Ole Miss is basically Missouri 2.0. Like, they're deeper and I think more talented at the quarterback, the running back, and the wide receiver spots, right? Which is where Missouri is doing a lot of its damage. And I think Pete Golding is ready for this game, right? Like, that's how you got to go into it if you're Ole Miss. You got to go in and say, we're going to put up 40, and Pete, go get us a couple of stops. And, you know, without Brock Bowers on the field, right, and without Dumas Johnson on the defensive side, best player on defense, I think you still got a shot to go into Sanford and, you know, do a little Fox in there, right? Make them Sanford boys your sons. That's a Red Fox uh, reference that I'm just stretching too far. I'll let it go. But Ole Miss is also 0-3 against top five opponents under Lane Kiffin. Again, 
Georgia has been Georgia for the past three years, really going back to 2017, if we're being honest about this, because you got to also go back to 2016 for the last time the Ole Miss able to beat Georgia. But that's just one out of the last 11, meaning Georgia has won 10 out of the last 11 between these two. And this one comes with another milestone for Georgia. They have won 26 straight. Okay. They can become the first team in SEC history to win 29 straight. 28 straight is the record. 1978-1980, Bear Bryant's Alabama, right? Getting in there. But my goodness, it feels like this UGA team is less about being dominant and more about being the team that finishes the three-peat. Because I think with each passing year, right, 2021, 2022, 2023, those teams have gotten less talented, but they're still really, really, really good. And that's the point to raise here. Like, I'm getting to a point to where Georgia feels kind of synonymous with Alabama, where you don't really have to know who's on the roster to know that who it makes the two deep is probably going to be drafted in the first or second round come the NFL draft in April, because that's just how they're recruiting. It is becoming its own conveyor belt there in Athens, the way that many people thought it would be when they got the right guy and Kirby Smart has certainly been the right guy. I think Jackson Dart, Trey Harris, Quinshawn Judkins can get at that Georgia defense. I think they can make it hard on Glenn Schumann and them. I just don't know if Pete Golden, that defense, can stop Carson Beck or Dejan Edwards from doing what they have done. Not to say nothing of Lad McConkey, who's just another dude that's coming along. So I expect it to be tight. I expect it to go into the fourth quarter. And because Georgia has basically been Ohio State this year going – we're not going to really start playing football until the second half. We're going to be silly until the second half, and then we will remind you who we actually are. That's worked for Georgia, who has been tied or down at halftime in five out of six games against SEC opponents. But against a team like Ole Miss that can score, you're going to have a hard time. Now, Ole Miss has only losses to Bama, right? Bama's sitting pretty in the SEC West, looking like the SEC West champ. But you get a win against Georgia, all of a sudden, we have to take you seriously as a college football playoff contender, to say nothing of Alabama would have to finish strong to get into that SEC West spot because, well, their only loss is out of conference to Texas. So we're, we'll keep an eye on this one, but I really hope this game is good. Like, I, I really do, because I think it has the makings of a classic, given what Lane Kiffin is capable of and given what Kirby Smart is capable of. But I'm picking Georgia because, well, Chuck, you know, this time of year, you're looking at not just who is healthy and how they're playing, but how deep they go. And Carson Beck continues to get better without Brock Bowers on the field. It's forcing him to go to other people. It's forcing him to say, Brock can't save me. And also you're getting to see a defense that's got a little backbone to them too. Like they had to come up with a couple of stops against Missouri late to win that game, but we'll see, right? Cause I think they're going to get tested this weekend and I expect it to be tight. Now, number 18, Utah at number five, Washington, biggest game West of the Mississippi for me, right? I think this game's interesting because, well, the last three years, this has been a one-score game, right? That, that's that's fascinating. And Washington has won five of the last six. Like, that's, that's kind of – it's not the way I expected this to go. I expected Utah to kind of be putting the screws to Washington in this one, and yet, no, nah, that's not the way that it's been, right? Each of the last three times that they've done this, basically they haven't got to nine and a half. So if you're betting tight, maybe you're going to take Washington uh, – excuse me, Utah to cover in this game because – it's going to be tight, and it should be. This number one pass offense versus the number one pass defense. Utah seeking its first win against a 9-0 opponent 
since 1960, and I think they can do it. Like, if Cam Rising was quarterback of this football team, I think we would feel differently about it. But right now, it feels like, can you stop Michael Penix Jr., Dylan Johnson, and Rome Odunzi from doing what they have done? I think Utah's got it, but I thought they had it against Oregon, and Oregon handed them their head. They bounced back to put up 55 and allowed three against Arizona State. Maybe this comes down to Bryson Barnes at quarterback and just what he does or doesn't do, meaning throw the football to the other team or throw touchdowns. But I think if you keep the lid on your end zone and your Utah, you really have a great opportunity here to spoil Washington's undefeated season and to really put them up against the wall, having to probably prove it twice and beat in Oregon twice to get in the college football playoff. I think Utah also excels in this role, spoiling it for Pac-12 teams that want to make the college football playoff and spoiling it for themselves in 2018, particularly when they had Snoop Huntley at quarterback and took a second loss to get Oklahoma in there. But you know what I'm saying here? I think Utah is exactly what you expect them to be, a 10-win team. They're going to win games at the line of scrimmage. They're going to run the ball really well. Washington is much closer to USC than I think any other teams. Not just that they have a generational quarterback in Michael Penix Jr., who's really great throwing the ball over the yard. It's that the UWF defense has been bad here, especially lately. 124th in pass defense, 103rd in yards allowed per game, and giving up 37 and a half points. Like the last time that Utah played a team that kind of resembled the one that Washington is, they beat them at Coliseum. Now they've got to go into Seattle and get this. I'm going to pick Washington to win this because the game is in Seattle, and that is where Washington got its historic win against Oregon. But I, I submit to you, Oregon didn't lose that football game. Dan Lanning did. I, I understand that he's sticking to his guns and his principles there, but, you know, you're going to do that. That means people know what you're going to be about. So they expect you to go out there and perhaps lose on the football game or say to the players, go win it. I tend to think that players win and coaches lose, right, just as a matter of course. But if you are Washington, you can't afford to get into another shootout. Like, if you're in a shootout, you're in a bad spot. I also think that Utah is not going to give you the ball back. Like, that's that really chaps me. I would never want to give Michael Penix Jr. the ball back down less than a TD, right? You always want to grind out the clock, and I think that's what Andy Ludwig, Kyle Whittingham are going to do, and they're going to say, hey, Morgan Scally, go pitch us another gym because they're perfectly capable of doing just that. So while I expect that to be about who basically runs the Pac-12, the defending Pac-12 champ, Utah, or the budding Pac-12 champ, Washington, we got this USC at number six Oregon game that's coming up a little bit later on that day. Now, Oregon is 14 and a half point favorite, and they should be. Because USC is not the USC we saw three games ago. Starting 6-0, USC has lost three of its last four, fired the defensive coordinator, and booked Riley's second three-loss season in as many years at USC. Why is that important? Because Lincoln Riley never had a three-loss season at Oklahoma. That's how much more difficult it has been for him to coach at USC, even knowing he's got the Heisman winner at quarterback and generational talent, not just a quarterback, but all over that offense, right? Deuce Robinson is just finding himself. Zach Branch has been that guy. Taj Washington is probably their most talented wide receiver. Mario Williams is out there. Like, you can see the offense, and it does what it needs to do. They're going to put up 40. As a matter of fact, they put up at least 40 in eight out of nine games. It's about can Brian Odom and Sean Nua do something that Alex Grinch couldn't, which is get that defense 
to play outstanding scoring defense, stop people from getting into your end zone so that the offense can go do what it does and do it well. The problem with that is Oregon's just as good defensively as they are offensively, and they are scarily efficient offensively. Bo Nix, he beats USC. He wins a Pac-12 championship. He's going to be in New York with an outside shot to win the Heisman Trophy. Meanwhile, on defense, you know, Dan Lanning over there in Tosh LePoy's grill. Like, the one thing I love about Dan Lanning is that dude ain't in the mercy business, okay? He's saying we play football, so I'm going to bloody you until the game is over. We are not letting up. We are going to score as often as we can, and we're going to take the ball away from you as often as we can. The good news for USC is I don't think Lincoln Riley would have it any other way. Like, right now, I almost envy USC. I almost envy Lincoln Riley. I almost envy Caleb Williams because I am never so tenacious and so strong and so full of confidence as when I am expected to lose. I'm expected to lay down. I'm expected to give up. And I want to see if USC got some get back. I want to see what you got off the mat because, hey, I talked to Caleb Williams earlier this year. We talked about who are you? Well, he's the guy that says, if you hate me now, you're going to love me later. He is the guy that loves to quote Kobe Bryant. He is the guy that likes to wear the black hat and doesn't mind as long as his guys want to follow him in the battle. Right now is the time. Right now is the moment. Like, you want to be that dude. And if you are that dude, you got to show some moxie against the Oregon team that absolutely positively wants to hand you your head because you are who you are. Because you walk around the way you do. Lincoln Riley saying things like, there's going to be great defense played at this school. And we still got everything to play for. Maybe he believes it. I hope he believes it. Because they're going to need every bit of that to go into Austin. That's a tough place to play football. It's a tough place to play offensive football. And it's a tough place that is going to test you for the rest of what you have left, right? I can't wait for that. Like, I, I really am interested, not just to see if Dan Lanning absolutely wears them out. But what does USC do in response to the last three games? What does it do in response to losing to Utah? What does it do in response to losing to a Notre Dame team that we now think is just okay and not great? What does it do in response? That is going to be the question that I put before them and the one that I can't wait to see them answer on Saturday night. I'm picking Oregon because I got to pick Oregon because that's a smart thing to do because, well, I think that their balance with Bucky Irving and Jordan James and Tez Johnson has announced himself along with Troy Franklin. You've heard me wax poetic about Bo Nix, but man, it would be great if this was a good football game. And if it is, I will be the first person to tell you about it right here on Sunday for that show. But we will be live Saturday night following Washington and Utah to talk about the well, early morning games, the afternoon games, and get you set for what is going to be an outstanding night of football and what the rank is going to look like the day after. All right. Our number one college football show leads of screening are Jack Coakley and Torn Westfall. They make us better in the film room. Production assistant Kiara Santana puts the special in our special team. Social producer Javion Duncan makes the cake that recruits and the rivals both see. We got Aaron Schechter sending the signals tonight. Catherine Cordaggi sees the entire field from the booth. I got Niles Owens holding up the placards over my head as lead producer Tyler Wojak calls the play from the sidelines and the play snaps on my clap. We will see y'all Saturday night. Till then, stay low. Keep those feet dry.